Awesome. Thank you, Luke. Well, good morning, church. Am I, I don't know. Uh, am I on? Doesn't sound like I am. How about now? Oh, there we go. Awesome. Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you guys again. A blessing to be able to preach this morning. Uh, I wish it was under different circumstances. Uh, Matt and the Shockneys, if you guys are on Zoom and watching, we miss you a great deal. We hope, again, that you will have healing and fast recovery. When I last preached two weeks ago, I had no idea that I would be back up here again so soon. Um, but here I am. So uh, with my students on campus, I'd been going through some different parables, teaching them uh, just some well-known parables as well as some unknown, uh, well, not unknown, but less well-known parables. And so when it came time for today, I figured it would be wise to just dive into the parables with all of you. If you don't know me, my name is Mark, and uh, I'm the campus director of, of Crew or Campus Crusade at IU. And so it's just a, a blessing and a delight to be able to um, preach this morning. We're going to be in one of those parables. I'll tell you which one in just a second. But I, I want to start out by talking about that delightful day known as Syllabus Day. Uh, Many of you guys know I'm working on my master's, and Syllabus Day for me, it's that first day of class where you walk in and the professor, sometimes the only thing that he does is pass out the syllabus and go through it. And it's a delight for me because on the one hand, oh, we're not doing much work today. Okay, we're just reading through this thing that I could have read by myself. But it's also not so great because you look at the syllabus and you see, oh, here's actually everything that's going to be expected of me in the next few months. And that's not always a great feeling. Well, as you read over the syllabus, there's always that one section called required reading, right? Required reading. These are the books that you have to read for class. There's also a section, usually maybe kind of right after that or next to it, called for further reading or optional reading. And I can tell you, in my entire life, I've never stopped and read that part. Because it's optional. It's for further reading. I can get an A in the class without ever touching any of those books. So, no thank you. The required reading over here is plenty. I'm not going to go look at this for further reading. No thanks. The truth is, there are some things in the scriptures that as we pass over them, as we read through them, we look at them and we say, Lord, this seems kind of hard. Doesn't this maybe belong in the for further reading section? Isn't that really where that belongs for further reading? It's kind of optional. That's an optional part of my Christian life. Maybe I'll try as hard as I can, but that stuff over there, yeah, I don't know. Well, the parable we're going to read today addresses one very specific thing that we often like to put in the for further reading section, specifically loving our neighbors. We know that we're supposed to love our neighbors. This isn't a new idea for those of us who have grown up and been around the church. We know we're supposed to love our neighbors. People outside the church often know that Christians are supposed to love their neighbors, but we often have questions about that. What does it look like? When have I fulfilled that command? Because after all, there's some people over there that, you know, they're really hard to love. Just no thank you. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll just be nice to them, but I don't really want to love them well. Well, Jesus gets asked this question of what it looks like to love neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, if you've, again, grown up in the church or been around the church, 
or even if you've heard this story before, you're going to come with some ideas about this story. And I want to ask us to kind of put those ideas aside for a minute. Yes, you may have heard this before, but let's read it with fresh eyes this morning as we read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me pray, and uh, we will start talking about it. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. May what I say today here be true to your word. Help us to have ears to hear, hearts that long to understand, and help us to go and do likewise when everything is said and done. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And as we walk through this, before we even get to the parable, there's going to be two points that I want to surface in the text. And then in the parable itself, there'll be one thing that I want to surface. And then we're going to have a fourth thing. So two things before, one thing during, and then a fourth thing that I want us to respond to uh, at the very end. So that's where we're going. You can be listening for four specific things. Now, this parable falls in Luke chapter 10. And before this parable, we've seen Jesus send out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. They're saying that the kingdom of God is here. And they come back to Jesus reporting, oh my goodness, Jesus, amazing things happened. This is so awesome. And throughout the book of Luke, Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of God. Saying that God's kingdom is here among us. And so we get to this this portion of chapter 10. And this, this portion of chapter 10 is put here. Luke places it here in his narrative with the specific purpose of helping us understand what that kingdom is like. What are the ethics of this kingdom? What defines this kingdom? What are those in the kingdom like? That's why we get this parable here. So let's start off. We're going to go pretty slowly, just a, just a verse or two at a time. We're going to pause a lot and just kind of unpack what's going on. So here we go. Verse 25. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus is getting tested by this lawyer, this guy who would have been an expert in the law, this guy who would know all about what it means to be a good Jew. And he's behaving skeptically towards Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, you've been proclaiming this kingdom. You're saying the kingdom of God is here. But, you know, okay, well, let's see if you really know what that's like, Jesus. Because the kingdom of God here now has got to be consistent with the kingdom of God before. So, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is another way of asking, what must I do to be in the kingdom? Eternal life is being in the kingdom of God. And this is a question that all of us are asking. We want to know, how do I become right with God? How do I be in his fellowship? What does it look like to be part of his family? All of those questions are important questions for us that we yearn for and we talk about even as a culture. And you ask anybody anywhere, that question is somewhere in their mind. And he's asking Jesus this, but he's putting himself as the judge of Jesus' answer. Jesus, do you really know what you're talking about? So let's see Jesus' answer. He said to him, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, the lawyer answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus flips the question around. He's like, well, what do you say, Mr. Lawyer Man? And then he proceeds, the lawyer proceeds to give a two-part answer. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. And this comes from two specific places in the Old Testament. The first one, love the Lord your God, comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It was called the Shema. And the Jews every day, every morning, every evening, all the time, would be reciting it. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here comes the command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So they took this very seriously. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they took that And they did it all the time. And for them, they said, that is how I am loving the Lord. I'm just going to recite this. I'm going to do it. We're going to follow this. We're loving the Lord. That was kind of the pillar of what they did. The pillar of what they did. Now, the second one, the second command comes from Leviticus 19.18. And it's an exact quote that Luke gives us of, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then the rest of the verse goes, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am your God. So loving neighbor gets grounded in who God is. And so these commands get linked. Because when you look at the law, when you look at the Old Testament, and you ask the question, what is it commanding them to do? You see that, yes, it is indeed talking about loving the Lord. And all of these commands oftentimes talk about loving your neighbor. Past few days, I've actually been in the back half of Exodus in my own personal devotional time. And as I've been reading, sure enough, these commands over and over again are about right relationship with neighbor. Are about how do I love my neighbor in the midst of all that's going on. And it's always grounded in who God is. So this lawyer gives this answer. You love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. He says those two things... That's what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. That's how God's people are described. So let's see Jesus' response to this. Verse 28. And he, Jesus, said to him, the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus agrees. He agrees with the lawyer's assessment. He says, you're right. Yeah, you got that down. Those two things, that's what the whole law in the Old Testament is about. And all that is pointing to the kingdom of God and what it means to be in it. Love God, love your neighbor. Yes, good job, lawyer. You're right. The conflict that's about to come is not based upon what the text says. It's not based upon what it means To be someone who is in the kingdom. The conflict that is about to come comes from an understanding of who the neighbor is. So here's the first idea. First thing I want us to grasp from what we've read so far is that right relationship with God or kingdom life, it's characterized by right love for God and for neighbor. Okay? 
That is absolutely core and foundational. If you get rid of either of those, you no longer have the God of our faith. You no longer have our faith. You no longer worship Yahweh. Love God, love neighbor. Those are incredibly, incredibly important. But we're about to get a conflict, as we said. So, let's keep going. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? The lawyer looks for a way out. He's probably thinking, I'm okay with loving the Lord. I recite the Shema every single day. I'm faithful to do all that the law commands as far as the sacrifices and the ways to be obedient. But then we get this question of lawyer. He's like, "Mm, you know, that's kind of hard. Or sorry, neighbor, not lawyer. You get the question of neighbor. And that is hard. And he starts looking for loopholes and technicalities. And we love a good loophole, good technicality, don't we? There was a, uh, an article that ran in the Atlantic kind of sharing about the technicality uh, in Illinois law. Uh, this was kind of a funny story. This is what happened. Uh, there were some officers who were charged with the duty of enforcing game laws, so hunting, fishing, that kind of thing. They're trying to enforce it. They received information that on a particular passenger train in Cook County, Illinois, there were men who were illegally in possession of hen pheasants. Hen pheasants. I don't know why that's illegal, but it was. And they were in uh, possession of these things. And so they board the train, and they saw some hen uh, or some pheasant feathers protruding from the pockets of a passenger. So I don't know if he's got them stuffed in here and his jacket somewhere, but you know, he's got some feathers sticking out. And it would appear that the information from the, uh, that they had been received via a tip or something, it was substantiated. So they searched this guy. His name was, uh, his name was Sigmund Del Luca. And they searched Deluca, and they found he was in possession of four hen pheasants. So again, I don't know where he's hiding them, but they're on his person somewhere. He's got four of them. Deluca then confessed to the officers that he'd killed the birds, and this was a perfect case establishing a violation of the game laws that they had. Now, this was perfect to everyone, and the Atlantic says it this way. It was perfect uh, to everyone except the Illinois Supreme Court. They ended up reversing the conviction that this guy had. You know why? They said that when the officers saw the the pheasant feathers sticking out of the guy's pockets, they had no way to tell whether they were the feathers of hen pheasants or, get this, cock pheasants. So whether we have a girl pheasant or a boy pheasant, and they're like, well, you couldn't have known that, so it was an illegal search and seizure, and all the confession and everything that happened after that, insubstantiated, doesn't matter, He gets off the hook. He gets off on a technicality. The guy was clearly guilty. Now, sometimes we laugh at that. We're like, well, that guy had a really good lawyer if that's that flew. Like, that's insane. But we love that, too. We're like, we're looking for that in our own life, looking for technicalities that will get us out of the law. So when it comes to loving God and loving neighbor, we're saying, where can I get off from this? Because a lot of times we look at loving the Lord and we say, I can kind of put all these things that I do under loving the Lord, and I'm good with that. And it's easy to fake that and hide that. And so we look for a technicality elsewhere with loving neighbor. But that's where it betrays us. Because if we're not loving our neighbor, we're not loving the Lord. If we're not loving neighbor, we're not loving the Lord. We look for technicalities. 
So this is my second point. We redefine who our neighbor is. That's the technicality that we use. We redefine it. That person over there, ah, they're hard to like, no thanks. That group of people, they kind of make me uneasy. Nope. And our neighbor begins to be the people we like and the people that look like us. The people that are easy. Those are my neighbors. But Jesus is going to flip this on its head. So yes, I've spent a lot of time outside of the parable, but all of that is to set up the parable itself. Because if we don't read the parable in our context and see what sets it up, we're going to misread the parable. And we're going to walk away with a sense of, yeah, I just need to be like the Samaritan. Okay, great. But the parable itself, I need to understand that it's a biting indictment of my own heart. I need to not see the Samaritan as just the hero, but I need to understand that I am not like him, that I am very much the villain. So let's dive in, starting in verse 30. This is Jesus' answer to who is my neighbor. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jericho to Jerusalem, or sorry, excuse me, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So he's in distress. There's an opportunity for someone to step in and love neighbor. Okay? That's what Jesus is creating. He's creating an opportunity for someone to love neighbor. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, again, we may be familiar with the story, and so we're a little calloused to what we're hearing. The priest and the Levite would have been among a class of people. They were good Jews. Every day, they would wake up and recite the Shema. They would know, love your neighbor, or sorry, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They would also know, love your neighbor as yourself. They'd be reciting the need to love God daily, multiple times. But when they have an opportunity to love neighbor, they walk by on the other side of the street. Now there's a lot of debate and conversation. Are they walking by because they're trying to be pure and they're trying to kind of uphold, you know, moral or purity laws and not defile themselves with a potential dead body? You know, what's going on there? I think ultimately all of that conversation is unimportant and meaningless. We know that they would have known they need to help. For example, if someone's child fell in a well on the Sabbath, you would help the child out of the well. And that would be in violation of the Sabbath law, supposedly. But they knew that that was what they ought to do. So they know that if they're loving God, they can't just pass by on the other side. But these guys, let's insert the pastor, the missionary the Bible study leader, the youth pastor, those spiritual people. And they walk by and they say, no, I am not going to serve. I'm not going to serve. We are like this. We need to stop here in the story and ask the question, where am I like this in my own life? We can't just brush over this and be like, okay, I can't wait to get to the good part where we see the hero and everything works out in the end. No, we need to stop and say, how have I walked by on the other side? Where in my heart do I want to walk by 
on the other side? It's the hard, hard question. Where do you want to walk by on the other side? Let's keep going in verse 33. But a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. You should want to spit when you say it. The dirty, the no good Samaritan. The one who doesn't worship Yahweh rightly. That guy. The guys that the Jews hate. Just a chapter earlier in Luke, Jesus is rejected by a Samaritan village and the disciples are like, hey Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on this village? The Jews hated these guys. So as this lawyer is listening to the story and the people around and the disciples are listening to the story, we've had the priest and the Levite go by, the respected people, and all of a sudden we get the Samaritan. But a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. But a... Samaritan. Personal question for you. What group of people, when you see but a Samaritan, ought you to connect your mind with? What, what person, what group of people would you dread to see there? Would it be Democrats, Republicans, Trump supporters, abortionists, atheists, Muslims, millennials, Generation Z, boomers? Sorry, Gen X, nobody hates you. Maybe for those of you who are students, you're professors. You're like, mm-hmm, don't like them. Maybe it's country folk, city folk, those Bloomington elites, soccer moms, meth heads. Maybe those people on social media that just kind of pop up and drive you bonkers. Maybe it's that family member that you're around all the time. Or just that one person that annoys you. We've all got them. Or that person that wronged you. That person that you're like, mm, not them. Please not them. They couldn't, they couldn't possibly be the hero of this story. Not them. We must read this parable with a level of discomfort. Understanding that Jesus within us is trying to evoke a sense of where I don't See people as my neighbor. Because what does this guy's love look like that would make me uncomfortable? What does love look like in general? Well, we see that the lead foot is one of mercy. It's one of mercy. It's not judgment or skepticism. The Samaritan doesn't sit back and kind of evaluate and say, eh, you know, let's, let's see what's going on. No, it's one of mercy. He has compassion. It's this idea that something wells up inside of you. This compassion that the Samaritan has, that word, is often used to describe Jesus and his response to people. It says, when it says that Jesus had compassion on the, on the, on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd, it is that word. The Samaritan has compassion. He's moved within him. It's not a, eh, I feel bad for you, son. No, it's a, oh my goodness, I weep with you. 
and I can't help but be moved. And so that's the second thing that love is like. It, it acts. It's something that moves. The Samaritan doesn't just see. He doesn't just mourn. He doesn't just weep, but he acts. He acts. He sees to the needs. And you can tell that he sees because he acts. If you don't see, or if you don't, excuse me, if you don't act, are you really seeing? The Samaritan shows that he sees because he acts. And then thirdly, love risks. So love starts with mercy, then love moves to action, and that action often involves risk. Risk. It could be a trap. This guy could be pretending to be dead so other robbers could come in and get him. It could be a foolish decision, but he does it anyways. He considers the needs of somebody else above his own needs. Above his own. In the early years of the church, whenever a plague or a pandemic would come about, Christians were the first ones to step out and say, I will serve. I will take care of the sick and dying, oftentimes at risk to their own life, and many of them did get sick and die because they thought to care for the sick and dying around them. But if you look at what's going on right now in our culture and what's happened for the past year, you have two extremes. And I see this with friends of mine. We have on the one extreme an overwhelming fear that says, I cannot serve I cannot put myself at risk. And I'm not talking about, you know, people who are elderly and this could be a serious, serious thing. I'm talking about people my age who are like, I cannot put myself at risk. I can't help people because I might get sick. Not I can't go help this person right now because I live with an elderly person and I have to weigh who I need to love more. No, it's, I I just, that'd be really inconvenient and bad for my family, I'm afraid. There's that one extreme, but on the other extreme, You have a passive indifference saying, eh, I don't really care. Personally, that's kind of the spectrum that I have found myself on very much over the past year. I'm like, I don't really care if I get sick. I don't care who else I get sick. And that's equally, equally wicked and wrong because it demonstrates a lack of love of neighbor. How do we love neighbor? That's a question that our culture has been asking, particularly our church has been asking over the past year in the midst of the pandemic. But that's the way love is. It risks, it acts, and it leads with mercy. Okay, so let's finish out this parable. Verse 36. Which of these three, Jesus is still speaking, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the lawyer, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do Likewise. You see, Jesus in this parable is defining all people as our neighbors. He's basically saying to the lawyer, saying, bro, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question instead is, how can I be a good neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor? Because everyone else is a neighbor to me. So how do I move to them in love, loving them as I would love myself? Who is my neighbor is a foolish, foolish question. So this parable ultimately is teaching us that we don't get to set boundaries between those we have to love and those we don't have to love. He's saying, 
No. This is not a suggestion of do you need to love. Instead, he's redefining. No, it's everybody around you. And ultimately, get this, those in the kingdom love like the Samaritan. Those in the kingdom love like the Samaritan. That's the thing I want you to see within this parable. Is that we need to be asking, how can I be a good neighbor? Because those in the kingdom love like the Samaritan. Jesus is not giving us entrance requirements into the kingdom. It may seem like that on first read. Because the guy asks, well, what do I have to do to get, in, to, to get eternal life? But Jesus isn't answering with that. Here's the checklist that you give. This is part of a bigger conversation that is in the Gospels. And Jesus is describing the Christian life. He's saying this is what it looks like to be someone who's in the kingdom. The person in the kingdom doesn't pick and choose who his neighbor is. The person in the kingdom looks at everybody and loves. And he says that is the kingdom ethic. Loving does not get you into the kingdom, but it is a descriptor of someone who is in the kingdom. It's an oxymoron to say, yeah, I'm in the kingdom of God, yet I have zero love for my neighbor. Or I'm saying, the people in this little fence here that I like, those are my neighbors. Jesus is saying, no, this is what the people in the kingdom are like. This is what the kingdom, people in the kingdom are like. The Christian life isn't just, hey, I believe in Jesus and then I go do whatever I want. But instead, it's a life of faith saying, Lord, You have said that it is good to love you and my neighbor. Help me to do that to the fullest that I can because my life has been changed by what you've done. Because that brings us to the question of why. If those in the kingdom are to love like this, like the Samaritan, why and how can they love like this? Why are they able to? Well, it's quite simply because those in the kingdom have been loved. Those in the kingdom have been loved. Jesus behaves and exhibits love like the Samaritan. He lays down his life for someone who is his enemy. He has compassion and he puts his life at risk, dying for us. We deserve to die because of our sin. We deserve eternal separation from God in hell under his wrath because of our sin. But in his love, he moves towards us and says, you are my child. I love you. I love you and I'm paying for you with my own life. The same way the Samaritan paid out of his own pocket. That's what Jesus does for us. He goes to the cross, having lived the perfect life, not deserving to die, and pays the sacrifice for us. And because we are in the kingdom and have been loved in that way, when we place our faith in Christ then we can turn around and say, yes, I am going to love others because I have been loved in that way. Now, I want to say this. Jesus does not love because he's like the Samaritan. I did just say that, but I want to make sure I'm very clear about this. He doesn't love because he's like the Samaritan. But in reality, the Samaritan loves because he's like Jesus. Jesus doesn't look at this idea of love and say, hmm, you know, that seems like a good thing. I think I ought to do it. No, Jesus says, this is who I am. This is my character. This is who God is himself. A God of love and mercy who starts with mercy, having compassion, and drives him to act. 
This flows from himself. We see this back in Luke chapter 6. Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Plain, and he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who, uh, who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. And why? For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And he grounds it in this. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Remember Jesus asked... Who showed, or who was the neighbor? And the lawyer responded, the one who showed mercy. That is who God is, and so it drives us to love as well. If we are indeed his children, we ought to be like him. My children are like me, for better or for worse, because they are my children. If we truly are the sons and daughters of God, because we've been born again into his family, we ought to look a particular way. We've been made new. Because we've been loved, we must love, and a failure to demonstrate that shows that we are not truly his children. Jesus doesn't give us this option to ask who is excluded from this love, this love that is patient and kind, that doesn't envy, that doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude, doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's a familiar passage from 1 Corinthians 13. And it describes the love of Jesus and the love of the Samaritan. Now, all of this to say, what is our response? You look at the last thing that Jesus says. You go and do likewise. And he's asking us that, or he's commanding us that. Parables, uh, one scholar, Klein Snodgrass, has said this. He says, parables deceive the hearer into the truth. This parable ought to deceive us into the truth of loving our neighbor. It's not just a fun, oh, isn't that great? Okay, I understand who my neighbor is. Okay. No. It says, you go and do likewise. You have been loved. Go and do likewise. What does this practically look like? Even for us among the church. How do we move towards each other? What does it look like to be somebody that asks questions first? That seeks to know instead of being known? That says, I'm more concerned with knowing who you are than trying to help you understand who I am. I'm content if you actually don't know anything about me because it's not about me. Same thing of Seeking to make others feel comfortable instead of trying to make myself feel comfortable. When I'm in a conversation with someone, how do I steer the conversation to somewhere that makes me feel good? No. Instead, how do I see where the other person needs the conversation to go? How do we talk about the things that are on their heart and that they care about? How do we do that as a church? If you look around our church, who in our church do you not know? We are not big. There is no reason that we should not know each other. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine once shared, he was talking about his church, and he said, I don't feel like anybody knows me. And that should not be the case for us. Let us not be that kind of people. Let us be a people 
who know others, who seek to know them, seek to serve them. How can we serve the Shaknis when they are in distress right now? How can we bear their burdens with them? The other people in our church who are going through trials and tribulations, how can we be there for them? How can we know them? Who do we need to know in this room? Ways you can assess yourself, see how you're doing, is just ask a couple of simple questions about how well do I love and where do I need to grow? First off, what group of people do you struggle with? What group of people do you struggle to love? I mentioned that earlier. Secondly, what individual do you struggle to love? And what's one thing that you can do to move towards them so that you can go and do likewise? Maybe what's one thing you can do today in order to love them well? But also, we need to ask this question corporately. How do we as a body move towards people in love? And I'm not just saying as individuals within a body, but actually as a body moving towards people. We can ask ourselves, how well does my culture or my church, my group, how do we struggle to love well? Are there people that we struggle to love well? Particular types of people or voices that we don't like to hear. That doesn't mean that we necessarily have to agree with what they're saying, but who are the people that I don't really want to hear from? And then how do I move towards them and love them well? What would another group of people or another culture see within my culture and be able to say, hey, yeah, you struggle with that. When I lived in China, it was very easy for me as a white American uh, to begin to see things that were quite different in my culture and for people in their culture to kind of look at me and be like, you guys don't love very well in that regard. You don't seem to care much about your parents. Like, oh yeah, you kind of got us on that. We saw a lot of different things in their culture as well. But unless we're together and asking those questions, it's hard to navigate that. So where are our blind spots? How do we invite people in to speak and us be listeners and have a posture of love and mercy and compassion? What does it look like to be people that seek to listen and know? So guys, just in summary, loving God, loving neighbor, characterizes those in the kingdom. Yet we redefine who our neighbor is. Secondly, or thirdly, excuse me, we are loved by God and we demonstrate his love through our radical love for neighbors. And Jesus is asking us in this parable, or telling us there's no, there's no set boundaries on your neighbor. You don't get to ask who it is, but instead, how do I love my neighbor? He says, you are my neighbor, and I loved you. Go and do likewise. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you loved us, that when we were lying, broken on the road, being left half dead by our own choices and our own sin, that you in your goodness and mercy moved toward us and died for us on the cross and that you are a compassionate and faithful father and that you have loved us even though we were your enemies and that you have changed us and you have called us to be your sons who then go and love their enemies who seek to love those in need who don't make differentiations and distinctions between who is our neighbor and who is not. Father, may we be a church that sees all as our neighbor and seeks to love well. Father, we thank you for your graciousness. We thank you that you have shown us how to be a good neighbor because you are the ultimate loving and good neighbor who is the almighty God who loves us 
paid the life of his own son for us. I pray this all in Jesus' name.